Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Thank you for joining us today. This is part of our group learning program where we study the words of the Buddha in order to develop a life practice that's going to lead to enlightenment, where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, permanently, no longer experiencing any discontent feelings. Nothing will shake up the mind. The mind will be steady, it'll be stable, and unshakable. But in order to do that, there's many different teachings that one would need to learn, reflect on, and practice. And in order to move these teachings into your life practice, there are certain obstacles or certain hindrances that are going to prevent somebody from moving forward in their life practice. The Buddha referred to these as the five hindrances, but there are some similarities to the 10 fetters that you're going to see. In today's class, we're going to be sharing the five hindrances. We're going to be discussing these in detail, and then I'm going to be sharing the solutions or the remedies to these hindrances. These are the five major roadblocks or obstacles that are going to hinder you from attaining this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And we're also going to be talking about the four foundations of mindfulness as well, and even the seven factors of enlightenment. So as we talk about these five hindrances, it's important to understand that these hindrances are not permanent. So while we'll talk about them, I'll explain to you what they are. I'm going to explain to you the remedies to them as well, because as you encounter these, you're going to need the wisdom of how to antidote them or how to implement solutions to fix them. They're not permanent and you can overcome them, but you're going to need support. You're going to need the wisdom of how to actually do that. So thank you all for joining for today's class. As we progress, you'll be able to ask any questions that you like. You can do that through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom by putting your questions in the comment section. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand asking any questions or follow-up questions directly. So thank you for joining, and we'll just go ahead and move right into today's class, helping you to understand the five hindrances. As I share teachings, it's very important that students don't believe what I share. Belief isn't going to move the mind to enlightenment. Instead, you learn, reflect, and you practice, and there you independently verify the truth. And as you independently verify the truth, you acquire wisdom, and now you make wiser and wiser decisions because you've seen the truth. But if you just had belief, you don't know whether it's true or false, and this is why the mind can easily be shaken up by that. But if you see the truth in something, and you see it with your own eyes, and you experience it in your own life, and you've got the wisdom to know with 100% 
certainty that this is the truth, then your mind can be very steady and stable because you know the truth. So just like I don't suggest that any students believe anything that I share, I'm not interested in you even believing me that the Buddha taught something called the five hindrances. So here I'm going to share at the very beginning of class just a brief little thing that the Buddha shared in terms of what the five hindrances are. There's other parts of his teachings where he goes into detail about the five hindrances, which is what I'm going to do as part of our discussion today. I'm going to synthesize it in a way that you can digest it and understand it. But as part of this book series that I share, which is 13 volumes of books, you're going to see the five hindrances discussed by the Buddha at different times in his teachings. But here, this is just a very simple one so that you don't even need to believe me that the Buddha even taught something called the five hindrances. What he says here is he says, monks, there are these five hindrances. What five? The hindrance of central desire, the hindrance of ill will, the hindrance of complacency, the hindrance of restlessness and worry, the hindrance of doubt. These are the five hindrances. This noble eightfold path is to be developed for direct knowledge or experience of these five hindrances, for the full understanding of them, for their complete destruction, for their abandoning. So the Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment. This is going to eliminate all discontentedness. So anytime the Buddha is teaching about how to eliminate discontentedness, he's going to be pointing to the Eightfold Path because that's the solution to all the aspects of the discontent mind. But there's actually individual remedies or individual solutions to each one of these. Here, he's just providing a generalized teaching and sharing that it's the Noble Eightfold Path that is going to eliminate these five hindrances. But understanding the detail of what each individual hindrance is and the remedy is what we're going to be talking about in today's class. So moving on, let's just describe a bit of what the five hindrances are. The five hindrances have some similarities to the ten fetters. You're going to notice in the Buddhist teachings, he teaches in layers, where he'll teach something at a certain level of detail, then he'll teach it another way in a different level of detail, and even another way in another level of detail. So through learning and practicing the Eightfold Path, this will eliminate the ten fetters. But the ten fetters have individual solutions to each individual one of them which includes the seven factors of enlightenment. This will help the mind eliminate the five hindrances. But the five hindrances are not the ten fetters completely, and the ten fetters completely are not the five hindrances. Four out of the five hindrances are in the ten fetters, but there's another six fetters that are a much deeper level than what we talk about in the five hindrances. And then there's one hindrance that doesn't show up exactly the same way in the ten fetters. So there's kind of another perspective, another way of looking at things here. And this is where when we talk about the ten fetters, we say, okay, these need to be eliminated in order to experience enlightenment. And now we're talking about the five hindrances, whereas we say these are the five things that are going to be obstacles to you 
eliminating the 10 fetters and experiencing enlightenment. So we're kind of talking about them in a slightly different way and kind of exposing the mind to another perspective and another way of looking at these teachings. This is very common in the way that the Buddha actually teaches because he teaches this way with things like the three universal truths and the four noble truths, the eightfold path and the five precepts. These are things that are all interconnected. And you'll see this where <clears throat> you'll see something like mindfulness. It'll show up in the seven factors of enlightenment. It'll show up in the eightfold path. It'll show up in other parts of his teachings with other things, because depending on how you're looking at the teachings and what angle you're looking at it from, there's different teachings that come in at different times. It's kind of like this. If you had a tool belt of tools, you might have a screwdriver that you pull out in order to turn a screw. But you know what? If you have a little piece of wood that you're trying to you know, move out, you can actually use that screwdriver as like a chisel and kind of chop some wood out as well. And you could also use a screwdriver as a hammer sometimes. If you don't have a hammer, you can turn the screwdriver around and start using it as a hammer. So this same screwdriver can actually do three, four, five different things. And it's the same thing that when the Buddha is teaching something like mindfulness, the five hindrances, the ten fetters, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, these are all different tools in your tool belt. And they can be used in different ways depending on what perspective or what angle you're actually talking about. These five hindrances are struggles or impediments to the path to enlightenment. And by looking at the five hindrances individually and applying the solutions, you can remove this hindrance or what we call a fetter or taint. A taint is a pollution of mind. And by removing the pollution of mind, purifying the mind, that's what moves the mind to enlightenment. So just like the 10 fetters are pollutions of mind, just like the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots are pollutions of mind, the five hindrances are also pollutions. And you're going to see certain symptoms associated with these five hindrances if they exist in your mind. And then when you see those symptoms, that's when you know to implement the solutions. So by talking about what the five hindrances are specifically and the solutions, then when you experience those and you observe those symptoms, then you can implement the solutions. And of course, you always have the ability to reach out to your teacher, get guidance, get support, because sometimes you might not even realize, oh my goodness, look at what the mind's doing. I'm not sure how to overcome this. Let me talk with the teacher. And this is why everyone, except for a true Buddha, which the last one that the world knows about existed over 2,500 years ago, everyone's going to need a teacher because you're going to need to reach out for clarification. You're going to need to reach out for help. You're going to need to reach out for guidance in those challenging times where a Buddha doesn't need to do that because they have such wisdom from all of the experiences they've had over multiple lifetimes that they have what they need in that last life to attain enlightenment on their own without the help or guidance of any other teachers. So let me just pause here and see what questions you guys have about what I've shared so far. If you kind of need to get a, 
a perspective of what it is that we're actually talking about. I haven't really explained the five hindrances yet or the solutions, but I've just kind of explained what it is that we're going to be talking about. I'm interested to see if there's any questions on this so far. And remember, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. Hello, teacher. Uh, as for uh, restlessness of the mind, uh, personally, I have challenges with this. So can you please clarify this or share your thoughts about this? We're going to talk about that as part of today's class because one of the hindrances is restlessness and worry. So we're going to explain what that is, what the symptoms of it are, and then what the solution is. Yeah, so uh, not seeing another question for now. Okay. So let's move on because in order to understand the five hindrances, you're going to need to understand the seven factors of enlightenment. So let me explain to you what the seven factors of enlightenment are first. These are going to show up as part of the remedies or solutions to the five hindrances. So as I talk about the five hindrances, I'm going to be sharing with you, you know, okay, the solution to this is practice mindfulness or the solution to this is practice investigation, energy, and joy. So let me be sure that you understand what the seven factors of enlightenment are first before we talk about the five hindrances because this will make it easier for you to understand the solutions. I talked about the seven factors of enlightenment way at the beginning of this program about seven months ago. So let me talk about them now in detail and kind of refresh your memory and give you a chance to understand them. The seven factors of enlightenment are tools to fine tune the mind. Sometimes people misunderstand these and they think that this is what determines if you are enlightened, but there's multiple things that determine if somebody is enlightened. An enlightened being is going to be practicing all seven factors of enlightenment. But before you get to enlightenment, you're going to need to invoke a different grouping of these seven factors of enlightenment at different times, depending on what's going on in the mind. So when you see certain symptoms in the mind, you're going to need to invoke a certain collection of these seven factors of enlightenment in order to move the mind to the middle. And here, let me explain these to you, and then I'll explain to you how you can invoke these and practice these in order to fine-tune the mind as another tool in your tool belt as part of this path to enlightenment. The first factor of enlightenment in terms of a tool that needs to be practiced, need to be understood and practiced in order to get to enlightenment, is mindfulness. This is part of the Eightfold Path and a central key component of the path to enlightenment as the Buddha taught. So here in the seven factors of enlightenment, this tool of mindfulness is awareness of mind as described in the Eightfold Path, which is the four foundations of mindfulness. We're going to be going into this a bit towards the end of today's class and talking about the four foundations of mindfulness. But the way that I explain mindfulness to you in this program is I will typically explain it to you as just awareness of mind. So for the first six months of your practice, if you just think of mindfulness and right mindfulness as having awareness of mind, understanding the thoughts, the ideas, whether they're wholesome or unwholesome, just becoming aware of the thoughts, ideas, perceptions, choices, decisions that are coming up in the mind, just having awareness of mind. Now, you need to cultivate mindfulness on a much deeper level than that in order to get to enlightenment. 
But for the first six months is of someone's development, I will typically just have them think about mindfulness as awareness of mind. And then in a class like today, as you're kind of embarking towards the end of this group learning program and you might restart it or you might move into the polycanon and English study group, this is the time where I'm going to teach you the four foundations of mindfulness, which is a deeper level of awareness of mind than just awareness of mind. But for now, in, for the next you know 20 minutes or 30 minutes, think about mindfulness as awareness of mind. And this is the way I taught you from the very beginning of this program to just think about mindfulness as awareness of mind. The Buddha says that mindfulness should be practiced all the time. He says it's always useful. So when you're waking up in the morning and you're laying in bed and thoughts start coming through the mind, you should be practicing mindfulness, awareness of mind. When you're waking up and you're walking to the bathroom, you're on the way downstairs to get something to eat or to your kitchen to get something to eat, when you're on your way out to work all day long at work or wherever you're at, on your way home, when you're at home with your family, when you're dozing off to sleep at night, we should be practicing mindfulness, awareness of mind at all times. This is where people think they're actually meditating all day long, which is not possible. You can't actually do a dedicated, purposeful, active training session all day long, which is what meditation is, but you can practice mindfulness. Mindfulness is utterly important, and the Buddha says it's always useful. Because remember, this path to enlightenment is to purify the mind. How could we purify the mind if we didn't understand or have awareness of what's in the mind? So you're cultivating this awareness of mind in your meditation, and then you're practicing it all day long where you're aware of the thoughts, the ideas, different things that are in the mind, various perceptions and decisions that you're about to make. Be sure you have awareness of mind and practice this at all times. The next factor of enlightenment is the enlightenment factor of investigation. This is dedicated examination or exploration, research, study, and questioning to learn the teachings. In order to move to enlightenment, somebody would need to practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, where you have dedicated, purposeful investigation of the teachings, where you're exploring them, you're studying them, you're asking questions, you're gaining insight into what the teachings of the Buddha are. So you would need to practice the enlightenment factor of investigation. As you do, then there's this energy that springs up in the mind. An enlightened being, and to get to enlightenment, you would need to practice the enlightenment factor of energy, which is effort, determination, ambition, initiative, motivation, vigor, enthusiasm, willingness to do something. Right? You need to practice this where you have this willingness to do something. The opposite of energy would be dullness, lethargic, complacency. That would be the opposite of energy. So in order to move to enlightenment, you can't just be sitting on the sofa like, yeah, 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 you know, I'll, I'll get to it. Whatever happens, happens. And of course, you need to find that middle, right? You need to have some rest and relaxation time, but you also can't be craving and go, 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 go all the time. So you need to find that middle where there's determination, there's enthusiasm, there's a willingness to do something. So that's the enlightenment factor of energy. As you're practicing that, what can spring up in the mind is then joy. 
this enlightenment factor of joy is joy associated with no object. It's unconditioned gladness of mind. The practitioner hasn't attained this joy by craving desire attachment. Joy is a mental state that is experienced not based on any particular thing, where happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, these are all discontentedness. These are pleasant feelings that are conditioned based on some impermanent condition. You got a new pair of shoes, you're happy. You got a new job, I'm excited. You got a new friend, oh, I'm thrilled, I'm having euphoria. I got invited to a concert to go see my well-liked celebrity. Oh, there's such euphoria in the mind because of this condition of getting a ticket to go to a new concert or getting invited to dinner or making a new friend or buying a new pair of shoes. Those are impermanent, pleasant feelings. They're conditioned feelings. The happiness, excitement, elation is based on the condition of something occurring where this enlightenment factor of joy is joy that arises in the mind and it's not based on any condition. It's unconditioned gladness. Why are you smiling? Just smiling, just a smile, because it's such a beautiful day. But it's raining outside. Didn't you see all the clouds? Yeah, it's beautiful. It's wonderful to have water come down from the sky because it cleans up the streets and it gives the plants something to grow. It's absolutely outstanding. Yeah, it's raining, right? So the, the mind isn't joyful because it's raining. The mind is joyful despite it's raining. The mind isn't joyful because it's sunny. The mind is just joyful because it's another day and just, hey, just going to be joyful to be joyful. It's a mental state that can arise in the mind when you get rid of all the pollution and the conditions that are burdening the mind. So these three, the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, and the enlightenment factor of joy, the Buddha recommends that we practice those when the mind is sluggish. When the mind is sluggish or complacent, lethargic, lacking a vigor, when it's dull, the Buddha says we should practice the enlightenment factor of investigation to investigate the teachings. This will spring up energy in the mind and then the mind will become joyful because the more that it investigates the teachings, it can practice the teachings and eliminate the pollution of mind that is burdening the mind, inhibiting this unconditioned gladness from arising. So it's very important that when you're thinking about, mm, you know, I need to read the book, I need to go to class, oh, I don't feel like it, oh, I really don't want to do that. That's the mind wanting to be complacent or dull and lethargic. And the Buddha says that's actually the time to investigate the teachings. That's what will spring up the energy and that will also arise this unconditioned gladness or joy in the mind. Now we move into the next set of factors of enlightenment, number five, six, and seven. The enlightenment factor of tranquility is where the mind can be relaxed, steady, stable, peaceful, and still. There's this tranquility that comes into the mind where you can just be completely steady, completely stable, very peaceful. There's this quietness, this stillness in the mind. It's like there's nothing else that you need. You're just utterly content in that moment. The mind's completely stilled, completely relaxed. And you might have experienced this for just 
a few seconds, maybe in meditation or outside of meditation, or you might experience it for a few minutes or a few hours or a few days, but then something came crashing in and the discontentedness came in and it destroyed this tranquility because the mind is not yet permanently enlightened. You just experience this kind of glimpse of this tranquility. And the goal would be to expand that more and more so that you experience this tranquility for longer and longer periods, ultimately being permanent. So this tranquility that the Buddha is talking about here, it can be permanent, but as you're transitioning the mind, it's not going to be permanent. So you work towards experiencing tranquility more and more. And if you've experienced even just one second or 10 seconds of this tranquility or longer amounts, that shows you that your mind has the ability and the capability to experience this tranquility on a long-term basis, even if you just experienced it for a couple of seconds. You got a glimpse of what that looks like and what that feels like. And now it's just a matter of learning how to eliminate the pollution of mind that's burdening it and inhibiting it from experiencing that tranquility long-term. And the more that you clear that out, then the mind will move more and more into longer and longer term tranquility until eventually you get to this permanent mental state where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. This sixth enlightenment factor, the enlightenment factor of concentration, is where the mind is alert or attentive. You have the ability to give your focus or attention to a single thought or a single object without all this chatter in the mind that you can just focus for extended periods of time. This is developed through practicing singleness of mind as part of the Eightfold Path. As part of the Eightfold Path, we have right concentration, which is to practice meditation, but also to practice singleness of mind where you're just doing one thing at a time. Rather than trying to split your attention across 5, 10, 15 different tasks and rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing, which can be detrimental to the mind, what an enlightened being is going to do is just focus on one thing at a time, do that really, really well, and then move on to the next thing. Do that really, really well and move on to the next thing. And they can be very successful and very productive because they don't have to circle back and clean up the things that they messed up. Whereas if we're doing five, 10 different things and we're cycling between all of those things, we're not doing all of those things well. And we might move on to our next task, but we're gonna have to circle back and clean up the unwholesomeness because we weren't focused with concentration and doing each thing with singleness of mind. So here, this enlightenment factor of concentration is to have alertness and attentiveness, giving your full attention to any one particular thing and practicing singleness of mind. So you're not watching TV, eating food, and talking on the phone. This wouldn't be productive. This wouldn't be beneficial. This is going to create an overactive mind. If you're eating, you just eat. You eat something. If you're talking on the phone, you just talk on the phone. If you're watching TV, you just watch TV. Whereas if you're doing all those things at one time, you're not fully ingesting and digesting the food in the best way. You're going to probably have a stomach ache the next day. You're not really talking on the phone and having a quality conversation. So it makes the conversation longer. And the person on the other end doesn't feel like you're really involved in the conversation. And whatever's on the TV, you're not really fully digesting the content there and getting the full benefit of the TV. 
So if you just talk to your friend, for example, and you had a meaningful conversation, it might be a five, 10 minute, 20 minute conversation, then it's done and over and you're off to the next thing and you know that you did that really well. You don't have to apologize later for not being involved in the conversation. Or if you're watching TV and you're gaining insight from that, you can gain insight from that and you know that you gained wisdom from whatever program you were watching. Or if you're eating food with your family or by yourself, you just eat the food and focus on eating the food. This is why when we eat and we talk, we end up choking because we're trying to do two things. And the body's like, no, you can't do two things, right? So this is our gamma. If we try to do two things at one time, there's the natural law of gamma here showing you this doesn't work. So if we just do one thing at a time and do it really well and give it our full attention with concentration, that's where you're going to find the most benefits. And then this last factor of enlightenment, the enlightenment factor of equanimity. This also shows up as part of the Brahma Viharas in the Buddhist teachings, and we covered this in chapter 14 of this program. Equanimity is mental calmness, composure, and evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. That's how it relates to the seven factors of enlightenment. But there's this other piece to equanimity, which is treating everyone impartially, treating everyone fairly, treating everyone equally. So equanimity in terms of fine-tuning the mind in these seven factors of enlightenment is to maintain the calmness, composure, evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations. Because if your mind's all shaken up and uncalm, you're not going to be able to practice mindfulness. You're not going to be able to focus and practice concentration. And you're not going to be able to then access wisdom to make wise decisions in your life. This is why when our mind is shaken up, we sometimes make decisions that create a worse situation for us. Whereas if we remain calm and composed, practicing equanimity, then we can have mindfulness or awareness of mind. And we can then practice concentration or singleness of mind. And now we can access the wisdom to implement wise decisions that are going to improve the situation. So equanimity is needed in order to move the mind to enlightenment. This is ensuring that the mind doesn't get shaken up by the least little thing that's happening in our daily life. The more that we understand the universal truth of impermanence, the more that we're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, eliminating craving, desire, attachments, working on all aspects of the path, the mind can gain this equanimity more and more and more. The Buddha says that this Enlightenment factor of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity should be practiced whenever the mind is excited. So if you're observing that the mind is excited or overactive, he says this is the time to now practice this tranquility, this concentration, this equanimity. This is what brings it to the middle. So if you observe that something's happened in your life, the mind is starting to kind of spin and be overactive and have this excitement that springs into the mind and comes into the mind and you can see the mind is uncalm, practice tranquility, practice concentration, practice equanimity. If you see the mind is sluggish or lethargic, that's the time to practice investigation, energy, and joy. That's what brings the mind to the middle. And then you always practice mindfulness. By having awareness of mind, then you know that the mind is complacent and it's sluggish, it's lethargic. And now you know the remedy, 
Let me do the investigation. This is going to spring up energy and spring up joy. Or you have mindfulness awareness of mind. You observe that the mind is excited and overactive. And now you bring in the tranquility, the concentration, the equanimity to maintain your calmness and composure. So the enlightened mind is going to be calm and relaxed, but yet attentive and alert. This is the enlightened mind. In addition to other ways that I describe enlightenment, it is calm and relaxed and attentive and alert. And by practicing all these seven factors of enlightenment, starting with mindfulness, having awareness of mind, wherever you see the mind is dipping into sluggishness or lethargic or dull state, that's where you can bring it to the middle with investigation, energy, and joy. And then when you see the mind moving towards excitement, then you bring it down back to the middle with tranquility, concentration, equanimity. And mindfulness is really enveloping the entire mind so that you can be aware of this and take corrective action when you need to. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have on the seven factors of enlightenment before we start talking about the five hindrances. Well, so uh, are these uh, seven factors arranged in order? I mean that uh, one should start by practicing maybe investigation and then go to energy and so on? Well, everybody who's listening to this right now, you're practicing the enlightenment factor of investigation. This might be why you might experience when you're done with class. You might have energy. You might feel this joy in the mind after class or after you've reading the book or after you're watching videos that you learn the Buddhist teachings. You might observe that there's more energy and joy that comes into the mind. So you need to practice the enlightenment factor of investigation in order to get any kind of progress on this path. But the way that these are taught, Bassam, is they really are specific remedies or antidotes to complacency. So if your mind was excited and overactive, that's not the time to practice investigation, energy, and joy. Your mind's overactive. It's like trying to put out a fire by putting dry leaves on the fire. Would you put dry leaves on the fire in order to put it out? No, because the dry leaves are going to kick up that fire and it's going to be a lot stronger. So what would you do if there's this fire, this excitement, this energy? Well, you would put wet grass, you would put wet cow dung on the fire, and that's what's going to put out this fire. So that wet grass is the tranquility, the concentration, the equanimity. But when your fire was dying, if your fire was going out, would you put tranquility, concentration, equanimity? Would you put wet grass on a fire that's going out? You want to spring it up. You want to bring more energy into the mind. The fire's going out. What do you do? You put dry leaves on it, right? You put dry wood on it. That's the investigation, the energy, and the joy. That's going to spring up the fire and make it stronger in the mind, spring up this energy. So these are taught as ways to fine-tune the mind and bring it to the middle. And it's not that you would practice them in order necessarily. You practice them based on what's needed in the mind. So this is another tool in addition to everything else that the Buddha gives us. He provides this guidance and this tool that, hey, when you see your mind's complacent or lethargic or dull, practice investigation, energy, and joy. 
And then when you see your mind is excited or elated, that's when you practice tranquility, concentration, equanimity. And then you always practice mindfulness. And then you can also look at this the other way, like I said, is that if you're going to actually sit down to read some of the Buddhist teachings and understand the Buddhist teachings, and you observe that your mind is overactive and energetic, then you need to bring some tranquility and concentration, equanimity into the mind and calm it down first. So maybe you should do some walking meditation or some seated meditation to calm the mind down, bring some tranquility, concentration, equanimity into the mind before you investigate. Because if your mind is overactive and energetic and you're trying to then practice investigation of the teachings, it's going to take it even further into excitement. And that's not what you're interested in. And then likewise, if your mind is complacent, that's not the time to practice tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Instead, you need to spring it up. You need to invigorate the mind with investigation of the teachings, this enlightenment factor of energy and joy. Well, so what's your advice for someone who thinks that uh, if I have confidence or trust in the Buddha or my teacher, I do not need to investigate the teachings? That would be a self-defeating approach because if your mind is not yet enlightened, you're going to need to investigate the teachings. You need to deeply understand them, reflect on them, and practice them because even if you don't have doubt, you still have craving anger and ignorance this unknowing of true reality because if the mind is having discontentedness then there's definitely some ignorance in the mind or this unknowing of true reality there's definitely some craving desire attachment you haven't yet eliminated that and you don't have the wisdom of how to do that yet because you haven't done it you haven't accomplished it you haven't got to what the buddha calls final knowledge someone who's attained enlightenment will get to what's called final knowledge. And this final knowledge is that you've essentially learned all the teachings and you've progressed to a point where now you're not experiencing any discontentedness whatsoever. The mind is fully enlightened. It's experiencing this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer being shaken up by any discontentedness. And you would see that for an extended period of time. You would see it for a year or two or three that the mind isn't shaken up. It's always steady and stable. So if you have a week or a month of peacefulness, that's not the time to get all excited and think that you're enlightened because if you get all excited because you think you're enlightened, that's still a conditioned feeling. So an enlightened being, when they know they're enlightened, is just kind of like smile and has nothing to say because their mind no longer is going to get excited at the condition of the fact that they've attained enlightenment. So if somebody's excited that they're enlightened, this is a indication that they're not enlightened. So you would just continue to practice the teachings. You would continue to progress. You would continue to evolve. And if you see a month of peacefulness, okay, great. If you see three months of peacefulness, that's fine. You see six months or a year, okay, things are looking pretty good. Now, you know, that becomes a year and a half, two years, three years. Oh, you haven't had any discontentedness in two or three years? Okay, but that's just for you to understand. That's just for you to know. 
you don't go out and tell other people because if somebody ran around and was telling everyone that they hadn't experienced discontentedness for a year or two or three, this is the arrogance and the pride in the mind. And there we know that the mind is not yet enlightened. So an enlightened being is going to just experience this calm and relaxed mind, but it's going to be attentive and alert. They're going to have concentration. They're going to have deep memory. They're going to have clarity of mind. They're going to have peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness. And there's going to be joy. It's very easy to access a smile and joy because there's nothing that's burdening the mind. Thanks, teacher. Let's go to Nick. Thank you, Boston. Hello, teacher. Sir, in regards to right concentration, can someone have that at all times? Or should we be practicing to, to have right concentration at all times, like, like as you would right mindfulness? Yeah, so an enlightened being is going to be practicing all of these at all times. They will have right concentration all the time, 100% of the time. They will be focused on just one thing at a time, handling one thing at a time. This is why their mind is focused, it's concentrated, it has clarity of mind. But until you get there, you're working in that direction. What you need to do is observe your life and where you see that the mind has this craving to run around and do so many things at one time, you've got to restrain the mind and pull it back because the mind's going to have craving and it's going to feel like it has to go, 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 especially if you're in a Western culture where that kind of thing is taught everywhere. You know, you have to have this big laundry list of things every day. You have to go, 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 complete your list. And if you don't complete your list, you're not a productive person that day. But this is ignorance. This is delusion. This doesn't work. This is why life is very stressful. So practicing right concentration should be all the time permanently. But you need to build up to that where you're able to do that more and more easily, more and more readily. And initially, you know, for a few weeks, a few months, maybe a year or two, it's going to be a real challenge. It's going to be a struggle. But you need to face that struggle. You need to face that challenge. It's going to be kind of exhausting sometimes, perhaps, if you're really working on this path hard. But that's where you have to step back and take a little bit of a more gradual approach to it. And don't necessarily push yourself so hard. You're not necessarily interested in complacency, but you're also not interested in this craving and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. But to answer your question, Nick, yes, an enlightened being will have right concentration and practice singleness of mind all the time, all their waking hours. But that's going to need to be gradually arisen in the mind as a person learns and practices more and more. By diminishing craving, this will allow the mind to kind of blossom into this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, where there's also concentration. It will blossom into that more and more. Okay, thank you, teacher. Now, what about if someone uh, is trying to practice right concentration throughout the day, and say they're eating food or you know having a bowl of cereal, and then their mind starts to wander or to think? Is that, uh, you know, it tries to figure out something. Hmm, oh yeah, I gotta get that. Uh, maybe I should do this like that later. But the person is trying to practice right concentration and just wants to focus on, say, eating the bowl of cereal. I mean, is thinking, is that doing two things at once? While eating and thinking, is thinking doing another thing? Yes. So 
you're probably used to that now where you kind of need to strip out your practice slowly but surely. It's like peeling back an onion and getting to the core and then there's emptiness and nothing's there. So you kind of strip down your practice where maybe before you were on this path, you might have been watching TV, talking on the phone and eating at the same time. And now you realize that that's not helpful, that's not beneficial. So now you just do one thing at a time, like eating. But now when you're eating, your mind is not yet fully trained. So it's still thinking about the future or thinking about the past or having all these other random thoughts, even though you're just eating. So even though you're just eating, the mind's not going to grab, you know, it's not going to immediately stop thinking about things because for the last 40 years of your life, you've been watching TV, eating and talking on the phone, watching TV, eating, talking on the phone. So even now for three months or six months, you're just eating. Your mind might be somewhere else. But with mindfulness, where you observe that, then you cut it off and let it go and come back to the eating, come back to the eating, come back to the eating, come back to the eating. And more and more, when you get good at this, the mind will just stay there. It'll just reside with the eating. It won't be all over the place. And this is why the breathing mindfulness meditation is so important, because in meditation, you're focused on just the breath, a single object singleness of mind. This is why Jan's asked questions recently about breathing and she's observed how the breath goes down into the body. She can hear the heartbeat and all these different things. And I was encouraging her to just focus on the breath only because the mind's going to want to go all these different places and you're interested in focusing on just one thing at a time. So you're training that way in meditation, but then your training continues in your daily life too. So even though you're not meditating while you're eating, you are practicing mindfulness, awareness of mind. And wherever you're aware that the mind is off the eating, you cut that off and bring it back. And you might have to do that multiple times. And you're going to have to do that over an extended period of time before the mind will just reside there. Even though you know these teachings of what you're supposed to do, the mind's not going to be able to just do that because you understand it intellectually. So you understand this intellectually and you build this wisdom, then it's going to take you six months, a year, two years to kind of rewire the mind where the mind's been wired to watch TV, eat a sandwich and talk on the phone and do these things rapidly, cycling thing to thing to thing to thing. So you're kind of rewiring the mind where you're training it to just focus on the eating and that's it. And it's going to take some time before it submits and it's willing to do that. All right. Thank you for the clarification, teacher. We have a general question on Facebook from about the five hindrances. Uh, Should we do that now or wait? Let me hear the question. Okay. Denise on Facebook writes, will someone experience all five hindrances until enlightenment? Not necessarily. They will definitely experience these at different times. You'll see as we talk about the five hindrances that some people will experience them at some times, some people will experience them at different times, but you are most likely going to encounter these, particularly the four of them that are part of the 10 fetters, you're going to encounter those. And you're probably going to encounter the other ones too, but they're going to be at different times in your practice. You might experience complacency, for example, 
at the beginning. And then you kind of get rid of it for a while, but then maybe it comes back in again, uh, you know, after six months or a year, it might come back or after a couple of weeks. So these hindrances can come and go because they're impermanent. And what you're looking to do with the solutions that I give you today is what the Buddha called obliterating it at the stump. You would like to obliterate it at the stump and destroy it so that it's no longer subject to future arising. So you might observe complacency, for example, at, say, the beginning of your practice. And then you get really motivated and really encouraged because it's something new. Let me get this new book. Let me get this new meditation cushion. All these new things are coming into your life and the mind likes chasing all those new things. But now after two weeks or a month or two, the mind goes back to complacency again, right? So you can have this complacency come and go, but wherever you see it, after today, you'll know what the solutions are. And then you just need some help with how to maybe implement those along the way. But then eventually, you'll get rid of complacency where it's no longer subject to future arising, where you've obliterated it at the stump, you've uprooted it from the mind. You're going to hear me talk about how these five hindrances are what's called mental objects. Mental objects are deeply rooted in the mind. They're much more challenging to get rid of and uproot. And because of that, they diminished very gradually and they can diminish for three months, six months or a year. And then boom, they come back because they weren't ever really gone to begin with. They just went dormant. And with mindfulness, that's why I'm sharing with you the seven factors of enlightenment, is if you're practicing mindfulness and awareness of mind at all times in your day, then you can be aware when these things start to arise. And then you can take corrective action. Because the longer you allow any of these hindrances to persist in the mind, the harder they are to get rid of. So if you can catch it like within the first couple of hours of complacency setting in or the first couple of days of complacency setting in, if you can catch it there and cut it off and uproot it and get rid of it, that's much better than six months down the line or a year or five years down the line, this person's been complacent. It's much harder to uproot that and move towards bringing the mind to the middle. So the more awareness of mind with mindfulness that you have, the more wisdom you have about what these five hindrances are, then you can catch them early on. And then that way you can chip away at them and diminish them and obliterate them at the stump, destroy them so that they're no longer subject to future arising. Well, let's go to Jen. Thank you, Basim. Thank you, teacher David. Um, I'm very um, involved, I think, right now in this investigation where I'm trying to spend time um, just sort of studying and questioning what I know and trying to understand better. And I wonder if you have any guidance for a, a good way to go about this. I, I've been setting aside a little time when I try to just do my study um, and not do anything else, you know, but um, any insight you have, I would really appreciate that. Thanks. Sure. We talked in this program about the way of practice which is practicing generosity, moral conduct, and meditation. This is what a practitioner who's on the path to enlightenment is doing on a regular, ongoing, daily basis. You're always practicing generosity in one form or another. 
You are practicing this moral conduct, which is right speech, right action, right livelihood, which includes the five precepts and everything else. And you're practicing meditation two or three times a day for 30 minutes or longer is what you're building up to. So this is what you should be practicing on a regular, consistent basis. Generosity, moral conduct, and meditation. But then, because you're on this path and you're not yet at final knowledge, you need to be practicing investigation in order to bring these teachings into your life by attending classes like this, by reading, by things like this. And what I suggest is that if you're going to read or watch videos or things like this, that you do that for kind of 15, 20 minutes a day, that amount of time. Whereas if you tried to sit and digest a book, for example, one of these books that I've written, if you sat and read that for an hour or two or three There's so many topics that you're going to be looking at over that period of time. It's hard for you to digest all of that, reflect on that, and practice it to have it make some real difference in your life. It's like taking a big, huge bite of a piece of pizza and trying to chew all of that in the mouth. Whereas if you just took little bites and you just kind of chewed a little bit and swallowed, and you took a little bite and chew a little bit and swallow, this is going to be much better. So the same thing is when you're learning, I suggest that everybody just kind of spend 15, 20 minutes a day reading from these books. You know, with this group learning program, it would be volume one. Uh, With the Polycanon and English study group, it would be all the other volumes. And what you're going to observe with this is based on reading a little by little every day, reflecting and practicing, life is going to be happening relationships, things at work, things in personal life, things with your children, your life partners and otherwise. Life's going to be happening. But if you're consistently kind of dripping the teachings into the mind, kind of like an IV drip, well, as these teachings are dripping into the mind, you're going to be reading something and you're going to be learning it. And then like two or three days later, that thing is going to happen and you've got the answer. It's like, oh my goodness, I was just reading that like three days ago and now this situation happened. I know the answer. Boom, let me apply that. Or the other situation is something's going to have happened. It's going to shake up the mind. The mind's going to be discontent for a day or two, but you have your nose in these books and then boom, you run across the teaching that, oh my goodness, this is explaining what happened to me two or three days ago. And now I know the answer of why that didn't work out two or three days ago. And now I know how to handle that better next time. So if you just slowly drip, not only are they easier to digest, but you're going to find that over the course of the years and over the course of your life, that things are going to be happening in your life that are directly applicable based on the teachings that you're reading. And this consistent way of going forward will allow you to more readily apply the teachings. Whereas if you only read once a week for an hour or two or three, it's not going to be as impactful as if you just drip it in like an IV drip when you get those IVs in the hospital. They have those IVs drip for a reason because they would like to slowly build up the body with this substance in order to nourish the body and rehydrate the body. And it's the same thing with the mind. If you just drip these teachings in slowly but surely, that's what's going to bring the most benefit. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So let's move into talking about the five hindrances. The first one here is central desire. This is one that shows up in the 10 fetters, as pretty much all of these do. Central desire is how the mind experiences discontentedness. 
central desire is the craving desire attachment. When we talk about craving desire attachment, how the mind has this mental longing with a strong eagerness, this is through the six sense bases. The six sense bases are the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body, and the mind. What's going on is the mind is craving. It has this mental longing, this yearning for pleasure. It wants these pleasant feelings. And it's taking in something through the eyes. It's taking in something through the ears, through the nose, the tongue, the bodily contact, or the mind. And it's chasing after these pleasant feelings by craving and yearning through these sense bases. So through the eyes, there's certain forms that are agreeable to the mind. Maybe a beautiful man or a beautiful woman or a beautiful car or a beautiful house, beautiful pair of shoes or jewelry or clothing. And the mind is longing through the eyes for this pleasurable thing, this agreeable thing. And it's chasing it through the eyes. Or there are certain agreeable sounds that you agree with, certain music, certain sounds that you like, people saying pleasant things to you. Certain odors that you smell in the nose, there are certain agreeable odors that are very pleasant, maybe cologne or the smell of a certain person, a man or a woman, or flowers or things like this that arise pleasant feelings in the mind. There are certain flavors that you taste in the tongue that are once again agreeable and that arise pleasant feelings in the mind. Then there's bodily contact with the body that is pleasant and agreeable that you experience pleasant feelings that arise. And then there are certain things in the mind that you think about and that are very pleasurable to think about. And this arises pleasant feelings in the mind. The problem is, is that if you allow the mind to continue to have this sensual desire, chasing after the objects of its affection, attempting to please the senses through these pleasurable things, these pleasurable things are not permanent. So if you see something with the eyes that the mind is chasing after and longing after, and maybe it even acquires that thing, and it allows these pleasant feelings to arise in the mind based on something that it sees through the eyes, it's not permanent. That form that it sees is not permanent. So those pleasant feelings that are arising are based on the condition of this agreeable form. And since that agreeable form is not permanent, it's only a matter of time before that fades away. And now the mind moves to painful feelings because there's this disagreeable form. So you might have this desire to buy a brand new sports car. There's nothing wrong with buying a sports car, but if the mind is doing it out of craving and desire, it has this agreeable form. It yearns, it longs to see this sports car in your driveway every day. Now when somebody hits your car, or you get in an accident, now the mind has anger and frustration because it was latching on to this car because it arises pleasant feelings in the mind because of when it sees this car, you might feel wealthy, you might feel rich, you might feel accomplished. There might be some arrogance or pride that comes into the mind. And if you allow that to happen because of the eyes craving these pleasant feelings and wanting to hold on to this car permanently, this car is not permanent. 
it's going to leave you someday. It's going to change because of impermanence. So if you allow the mind to do this through central desire, through any of these sense bases, it's only a matter of time before you experience painful feelings as a result. So this central desire, if you stay in the central desire, then it's an obstacle to your enlightenment. Here's another example. Say you know that substances that cause heedlessness are an obstacle, right? They're something that is taught as part of the five precepts that the Buddhist teaches that if we take substances that cause heedlessness, this is going to pollute the mind and it's going to cause us challenges in life because now we're going to be making unwise decisions. Well, you might learn that as part of the five precepts and you might intellectually understand that, yeah, I need to give up wine or beer or liquor or whiskey and I I should give that up because it's producing this heedlessness and when I'm drinking I'm not able to make wise decisions that are going to lead to wholesome results. But the hindrance is that the tongue really likes this flavor of the wine. It has this central desire that it's holding on to the wine and it doesn't want to let it go. And now this is a hindrance to your enlightenment, because as long as you're still taking substances that cause heedlessness, the mind isn't going to be purified. And thus, it's not going to experience this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy where the mind is completely concentrated and focused all the time. And the reason why is because it's being hindered by this central desire, craving a certain flavor through the tongue. This is just one example. So we need to strip away all of these central desires. It doesn't mean you can't own a sports car, for example. You can own a sports car. The Buddha is not giving you rules to follow. What he's helping you to understand here is how the mind functions and how the mind has this central desire, how it's longing through these sense bases, and that you're going to need to restrain the mind and pull it back so that it doesn't have this longing yearning through these sense bases. And the way that you do that, the remedy is to eliminate craving desire attachment. And what we do in order to eliminate craving desire attachment is practice breathing mindfulness meditation on a consistent ongoing basis two to three times a day building up to about 30 minutes or more per session and then we also practice generosity both of these are training the mind to let go because central desire is the mind longing and yearning and trying to grab on and hold on to things through these sense bases and because that's the problem What breathing mindfulness meditation is doing is every time the mind moves off the breath, you're training it to let go, come back to the breath, let go, come back to the breath, let go, come back to the breath. So then you can more easily let go of that wine that the mind is trying to hold on to through the tongue. So breathing mindfulness meditation is a way to train the mind to let go, but it's gradual training gradual practice and gradual progress that you're going to see this occur. And the same thing with generosity. When we practice the opposite of generosity, which is selfishness and stinginess, we're holding on tight to our wealth, to our time, to our effort, to our energy, different resources. We're holding on really tight. So when we practice generosity and we practice giving and sharing with our own hand, and we give and share our time, effort, energy, and resources, now we train the mind to let go. 
And both of these two practices are generalized training to train the mind to gradually let go. And then the other way that you remedy the central desire and overcome this hindrance or this obstacle is you do what the Buddha calls guarding the doorways to discontentedness. The doorways are these six sense bases. Anytime that you experience discontentedness, it's going to be through these six doorways. When you experience discontentedness, if you have enough wisdom, you can track it right down to a specific craving through one or more of these sense bases. And you can see exactly what the mind's doing. So by guarding the doorways and understanding with this wisdom that the mind is longing through these six sense bases, now you can practice that mindfulness or that awareness of mind. And when you see that the mind is longing for that new pair of shoes and just wanting to latch on through the eyes, it just wants that new pair of shoes. And you're reaching and you're grabbing and you're longing, you're yearning. You're calling all these different stores to find out if they have it. You're going from store to store to store to find that one pair of shoes that you just have to have. Then you observe that. Oh my goodness, this is craving. This is desire. You observe that with mindfulness. And you can cut that off and let that go. And then guard the mind with this mindfulness or awareness of mind. And if you guard the mind with this awareness of mind, when the mind starts longing through these six sense spaces, you can be aware of it sooner and sooner. And then the more you train the mind with breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity, you can more easily cut that off, let it go and come back and not allow the mind to keep longing. Because if you allow the mind to keep going down this path of longing with this central desire, it's going to just keep doing it. It's going to keep doing it over and over and over because it's this cycle. The mind is stuck in this cycle. It just keeps going around and around and around and around. The mind is like obsessed. So you've got to be aware with mindfulness that it's happening. And when you observe that it's happening, cut it off and let it go and restrain the mind and pull it back. You're not going to be able to do that perfectly every single time because your mind's in training. It's learning. But the more you learn, the more you practice, the more you're practicing all these teachings, then you're going to be more easily able to restrain the mind and control it, having this mental discipline. The second hindrance is ill will. This is part of the 10 fetters. We also talk about it as part of the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots. This is how the Buddha layers his teachings. Here it is as part of a hindrance. If you allow the mind to have this ill will, this anger, hatred, hostility, aggression, resentment, frustration, irritation, annoyance, these are just lighter versions of this. This is where the mind is going to then be motivated with unskillful conduct. When the mind is angered and hatred has hostility, aggression, resentment, frustration, irritation, annoyance, that's where you're going to see the unskillful speech. That's where you're going to see the unskillful actions. And now you're putting that out into the world with your children, with your life partner, with your friends, with your family. And now they get used to you being angry and hostile and aggressive, resentful, frustrated. And that's what's going to come back to you because other people around you are going to function in the same way. 
So where you see that the mind has this ill will arising, this anger, this hostility, this aggression, once again, you need to implement the solution. You need to have the remedy, which is a tool to fix this. The way that you fix ill will and get over this hindrance is you have to uproot it. You have to go to the root cause, which is in the mind. So we use loving kindness meditation on a consistent, gradual basis to now practice those affirmations that I teach as part of loving kindness meditation. And you do that and you're essentially rewiring the mind to no longer go down this path of ill will, hostility, and unskillful conduct. And where you see the mind going down that path, you instead are deciding to practice loving kindness meditation and practice loving kindness in your daily life. So rather than being harsh and aggressive with your words, you learn to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful with your speech and your actions. This is going to ultimately eliminate and uproot ill will. So you're bringing in the loving kindness with the loving kindness meditation, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. You bring this in and cultivate this, develop it, help it to permeate and fill the mind And as you're filling the mind with this on a consistent, ongoing basis, you're drip feeding this in. Now in daily life, it becomes much easier for you to have intention, speech, and actions that are emanating from loving kindness because you've been dripping that into the mind. You've been permeating that into the mind with meditation. So now it becomes easier and easier for you to practice loving kindness in daily life. And when you're reducing and eliminating the central desire, bringing down the craving desire attachment, this will also help you to bring down the ill will, the anger. Because the reason why anger arises, the reason why this hatred, this hostility, this aggression arises is because the craving is in there. The mind wants something through these six sense bases. And when it doesn't get the objects of its affection, that's when the anger and hatred comes in. So you're working on this craving desire attachment to bring that down, reducing the central desire at the same time that you're bringing down the ill will, the anger, the hatred, and all those other versions with the loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness in daily life through your moral conduct. And these things together are uprooting these hindrances and ensuring that the mind decides I'm done with this anger. I'm not interested in being hostile anymore. I don't like being aggressive. I'm not interested in being frustrated, irritated, and annoyed. Even though you're not able to do that 100% right now because the mind is not yet fully trained and it still has pollution of mind, if you're making the decision to turn away from these things, turn away from the darkness and move towards the light, now you're moving in the direction of uprooting this ill will. And it's loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness in daily life that's going to do that for you. This third hindrance is complacency. This is where the mind is dull, lethargic, lacking motivation. You might see this in some other texts, other books described as sloth and toper. I don't use those words because they're kind of older words that have been held onto and talked about and used for many, many years. What this is really talking about is complacency. You understand complacency. 
but you might not understand sloth and toper if I use that word. So complacency is the right word here. This is the dullness, lethargy, the lack of motivation, where the mind just wants to sit around and essentially do nothing. You want to just search and surf on social media all day and just sit there in complacency. You're not interested in going to meditate because you just want to sit here and be complacent. You're not interested in picking up the book and reading because you just want to sit here and do something else that's more complacency. And this is where you got to find the middle, right? Because there's going to be times where, yeah, you can search social media. You can do those things. Yeah, you can do other things to take a rest and take a relax. But if you allow the mind to slip into that for long-term periods of time, this is where the dullness and the lethargy and the lack of motivation occurs. So by uprooting this complacency through practicing the enlightenment factor of investigation, energy, and joy, which is what we just talked about, then that's what's going to eliminate this complacency. So if you allow the mind to sit around and do nothing for days on end, it's going to be much harder to uproot it. So if you go two, three, four days without you know, reading the Buddhist teachings and you just decide that, hey, I'm going to practice what I already know. Let me just attend class. Let me just continue to practice generosity, moral conduct, and meditation as part of my way of practice. Let me just keep that stuff going, really build that up. And I'm going to kind of put a pause on reading for about a week or two, allow my mind to get a little bit of a breather, practice the things that I already know, that's fine. And then two to three weeks later, or whenever you decide it's the right time, move back into investigating the teachings through reading and other things like that. Don't allow that to become two or three months that you haven't picked up a book or something like that, or you haven't attended class, or you haven't Uh, watched a video or something like that because that's where the mind's complacent and that's going to hinder you from getting to enlightenment. If you're just sitting around doing nothing, not interested in practicing generosity, not interested in proving moral conduct, not interested in practicing meditation, not interested in investigating the teachings, then life is going to just get worse and worse and worse. I was complacent for about three years from the time when I first moved from America to Thailand, I stopped meditating when I came here. It was like being on vacation. It was like being on a holiday, you know, living in America my whole life. And now coming to Thailand and living here, it was like, oh my goodness, it's a three-year vacation. And I stopped meditating for that period of time. And it was one of the worst periods of my entire life. So don't allow that choice of not investigating the teachings for a week or two or three. That's what maybe you're choosing. Don't allow that to become two months or three months or three years the way that I did, because that's going to be very detrimental to the mind and it's going to hinder you. Because if you're not investigating the teachings, you're not going to be able to progress on this path. That's why it's a hindrance. If you're complacent in terms of not being interested to practice mindfulness, you just sit around you're kind of lackadaisical, not being observant of the mind, then the mind is complacent. You know, you just kind of allow these unwholesome thoughts to circulate in the mind. You're not diligent and dedicated to observing the mind and cutting those off when they come into the mind. You just allow the unwholesome thoughts to permeate in the mind. This is complacency as well. So even if you're investigating the teachings, even if you're meditating, even if you're coming to classes regularly, 
you can still be complacent if you allow the mind to have these unwholesome thoughts and you don't do anything about them. When you observe these unwholesome thoughts coming into the mind in daily life, you need to be diligent and dedicated. Cut them off and let them go. This is a practice that the Buddha teaches as part of this path to enlightenment. So it's not only investigation that is going to determine whether you're complacent or not. Even in your day-to-day life, if you allow these unwholesome thoughts to permeate in the mind and you don't do anything about them in terms of cutting it off and letting it go, the mind is complacent. It's not diligently practicing the teachings and being observant and letting go of these unwholesome thoughts as they're arising. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Well, uh, the question now is, uh, do we born with these hindrances? Are we born with these uh, hindrances? The central desire, yes, you're born with that. You're not born with ill will. This is something that develops over time. Complacency, we typically have that as we're born. But central desire is there, uh, that craving, desire, attachment. That's the whole reason why we are being reborn, because in our previous life, we had craving, desire, attachment. That's the cause of rebirth. And when we come into this new life, we have craving. This is the reason why babies cry when they're born. Have you ever seen a baby that came out laughing and be like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for allowing me to be born. No, because the baby's attached to the mom's womb. And then it's so comfortable. It's in there. It's like, oh my goodness, this is the best place in the world. I don't have to do anything. I just get to sit here and enjoy all this food. It comes in on this pipe connected to my stomach. Oh my goodness, life just could not be better. And the next thing you know, Welcome to the world, Eh, right? There's all this crying because the baby was attached. It was craving this comfort. It was craving this luxurious condition inside the mom's stomach. And this is why we cry when we come out of our mom's stomach because we're attached. We thought this was going to be permanent. And now when we experience this impermanence of coming out of the birthing canal or having a C-section, That impermanence, the mind doesn't like, and that's why the baby cries. It's discontent. It's experiencing painful feelings. So we are born with central desire. That's the whole reason why we are being reborn. But children, when we're born, we don't have ill will. This is a conditioned aspect of the mind. This mental object gets formed based on many experiences in our life. When we have people that are harsh and aggressive, hostile to us, then we form this mental object of ill will and we start to also be hostile, aggressive, resentful, and things like this. And then complacency, we're pretty much born with that. Well, thanks, teacher. That's a good one, Teacher David, what would an example be of someone that has significantly reduced number one, sensual desires, and number two, ill will. I've seen uh, significantly reduced in other teachings. Yeah, so as you move into the jhanas, in order to get to the jhanas, you have to understand the core teachings of the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts. You have to put together your meditation practice and a lot of other things. But someone who's moving into the jhanas, they will be distant from sensual pleasures. 
they will no longer see them as something that is going to produce beneficial results in their life. They still have central desire when they're in the jhanas, but they've kind of distanced themselves from them. Therefore, their discontentedness has diminished. As they're getting further and further away from distancing themselves physically from the central desire, the mind still has central desire. There's two steps to eliminating central desire. There's distancing yourself from the object of affection. Then there's eliminating the craving that's in the mind. So when you distance yourself from central desires, then the mind will have eliminated a certain degree of central desire. It would have diminished them. So therefore, you'll see discontentedness diminish a little bit. And as you get closer to that first stage of enlightenment, the second stage of enlightenment and so forth, discontentedness will diminish more and more and more. And that would be an indication of somebody who is significantly diminishing central desire or getting the mind to eliminate more and more of it because they won't experience as much discontentedness. And then with ill will, the way that you'll know that that's moving in the right direction is that there are certain situations that once arose intense anger or certain rage maybe even or hostility. That same thing can occur and now the mind is just frustrated. And then that same thing can occur and you're just irritated. The same thing can occur, the mind is annoyed. Right? And then that same thing occurs and the mind's completely peaceful. So gradually you'll see that the mind diminishes its ill will this way, that you can be experiencing things that once would arose all this anger, that now the anger is starting to gradually diminish. And then you'll start seeing what comes through in the mind is this practice of intention, speech, and actions that are polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. Where in the past, we might have been harsh or aggressive or hostile with our intention, speech, and actions. Now, with more loving kindness in the mind, in the diminishing of ill will, we'll see more politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect come through because the ill will is diminished and there's more of this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And you know that part of seeing all beings be well is being polite, kind, and friendly, respectful to others so that you're not causing them any harm. So for clarification, the indicator would be the amount of discontentedness, just seeing that significantly reduced. Whereas I was more looking to see if there would be an example of, say, <clears throat> that, you know, there's a married couple um, and say the only sensual desire that one notices is just making love or having sex with the spouse but remaining all the other senses seem to be guarded. So I was wondering if that could be um, considered significantly reduced, you know, um, in regards to that, or is it just as what I gleaned from what you just said, that it's um, just significantly reducing the amount of discontentedness? It's reducing the amount of discontentedness and the severity of it, because the severity of your discontentedness is based on how much you really crave a certain thing. Whereas if you have just a 
minor kind of craving, you're just going to have a minor little bit of discontentedness. Whereas if you have a significant craving desire attachment, there's going to be significant discontentedness. And if you have a lot of craving desire attachments, then you're going to be experiencing discontentedness repeatedly and continuously rather than this diminishing where you don't experience it as frequently and you don't experience it as significantly. But in terms of sexual intercourse, since you brought that up, someone who's diminishing central desire, one of the strongest central desires that we have is the desire for sexual intercourse. So what you'll notice is if you've had a lot of desire for sexual intercourse in the past, but you're kind of observing that those desires aren't as strong anymore, maybe you're not as interested in having sexual intercourse as frequently or as often or for as long of a period, it's like, yeah, I've kind of been there, done that, that kind of starts to diminish. That's an indication to help you see that sensual desire is diminishing because sexual activity and sexual intercourse is diminishing because that's one of the strongest ones that we have because the eyes are involved, the ears are involved, the nose is involved. For some people, the tongue, the body, you know, the physical contact, and the mind as well. All six sense bases are involved in sexual intercourse. Where is if you're just eating a piece of chocolate, the tongue sense base and the nose sense base are involved, but you know, the, the ears and other things maybe aren't as involved. So there's craving for maybe something like chocolate isn't as strong for some people as, as sexual intercourse. But then there's some people who don't have craving for sexual intercourse, even as they first started becoming sexually active. You know, they just don't have that same craving. So someone who has had significant cravings in the past, they know what those are. And then you'll see them diminishing as you start to diminish sensual desire more and more. Thank you, Teacher David. That makes sense. You're welcome. Also, um, in regards to, I know this, you know, the, the Buddhist teachings have uh, a lot of things inter intertwined. So I guess this is part of one of the precepts, but uh, I'm seeing if it's also part of sensual desire. Like say someone has a, a, a script for medical marijuana. Um, you know, I've read in the book that, you know, you want a higher dose of CBD, these sorts of things. Now, would this be a, like a craving of the mind if someone was using it for like the wrong reasons or if they just um, use mainly CBD and they have a little THC, um, <clears throat> you know, like once in a while when, when, when pain is there or they notice when they have a little bit that um, uh, it, it sort of um, allows the mind, like they notice more reflection would that be like a, a craving or is that just like a benefit or how would you um, um, advise someone with their medical marijuana script and how to move forward, even if they think that THC is giving them a little bit of benefit? Yeah. So with marijuana, there's this huge gray area. Oftentimes when we talk about these kind of things, a person is looking for a black or white, not that you are Nick, but sometimes we you know we're like, is marijuana all good or is it all bad? You know, what is it? And you can't say that about too many topics because it's not that straightforward, particularly with something like marijuana. Marijuana 
is beneficial for medical purposes, things like seizures and like you mentioned, pain and things like this, it can actually be effective and helpful. But based on what you were saying about in terms of reflection, that there's more this introspection when somebody's taking a substance, that would be a craving desire attachment. Whereas if somebody is using it only for pain, then that would be a medical purpose. But oftentimes marijuana is being prescribed for things like stress and anxiety and things like this. The marijuana isn't going to solve the stress and anxiety because what's causing the stress and anxiety is the craving desire attachment. The marijuana is just going to cover it up. So even though we have medical professionals who are prescribing something like marijuana for something like stress and anxiety because some people look at that as a medical condition. I'm sharing with you that while stress and anxiety is impactful and causes a lot of anguish in the mind, it can actually be resolved through eliminating craving desire attachment. As long as we take something like marijuana for introspection, reflection, for stress, anxiety, we're not training the mind to do that stuff naturally. You can actually train the mind to be introspective and reflective without a substance. If we're relying on the substance to do that, then we're not developing the ability for the mind to do that on its own. Same thing as if we're covering up the stress and anxiety with marijuana, then we're not training the mind to eliminate the craving desire attachment that's causing the stress. We're just covering it up. So what the Buddhist teachings are about is getting to the root cause, which in this case is craving desire attachment. But with something like physical pain or seizures or something like that, a little bit of CBD oil to help with those things can be highly beneficial. And this is where it really comes down to a case-by-case basis in helping a student navigate this area of marijuana because there's such a big gray area. Could marijuana be considered heedless or heedlessness? I've never seen anyone act out and make poor decisions on something like when you compare it to, say, alcohol. Yeah, so marijuana can be taken for heedlessness. It depends on how the individual intends to use it. So if somebody's using it to experience the high related to marijuana, then this is heedlessness. And the type of heedlessness between alcohol and marijuana is different, where alcohol usually affects the mind in one way, Marijuana affects the mind in a different way, but it's still heedlessness because heedlessness is unattentiveness, unalertness, unmindfulness, or unawareness of mind. So when you look at what marijuana is doing, that it's promoting and creating heedlessness in the mind, you can't purify the mind. If you're chasing after pleasant feelings in the mind through ingesting a substance like marijuana, then that's going to be that conditioned feeling. That's going to be a sensual desire. The mind is chasing this pleasant feelings and the way that it feels like it can accomplish that is this condition of ingesting a substance like marijuana. But that substance is impermanent and as soon as the substance is gone, now the mind is back where it started from. And now it's addicted to the substance of using it over and over in order to experience these pleasant feelings that it wants. Where if you let go of that temporary pleasant feeling based on the substance of marijuana, now you can get to the permanent joy of 
enlightenment, where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you've uprooted something like central desire, and now the mind can blossom into this natural radiance, this natural experience of experiencing enlightenment. You know, I've smoked marijuana. I've taken other drugs as well. I know what those highs feel like, but they pale in comparison to this natural ability to promote in the mind this enlightened mental state of peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Just like the Buddha said, he described it as beyond pleasure and pain. So if we stay stuck in wanting something like marijuana in order to produce pleasant feelings, then the mind is still burdened with that craving, desire, attachment. It can't get beyond the pleasure and pain into this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that is the enlightened mental state because it's still hindered by this central desire. Understood, teacher. Uh, For myself, I was um, using it for the wrong reasons um, before I got on the path, but uh, now I'm more uh, mindful of uh, of how these things work. Thank you, teacher. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Well, on Zoom, I have a question from Anal. She writes, Teacher David, would you mind elaborating on the statement you just made of someone being born with complacency? Yeah, so when a baby is born in the womb, the baby's complacent, right? It's just sitting around essentially not doing anything. When we're born, we are just pooping, peeing, eating, you know, doing these basic things. We're sitting around being complacent. What are we interested to do as kids? We want to play all day, right? We just want to play. We just want to play. We don't want to do work. This is why children aren't interested in washing the dishes or taking out the trash or washing clothes or ironing clothes. They just want to play. They're complacent. So we're born with that and that is experienced as we are children. But then at some point, we need to move beyond that and realize that in order to be successful in life, successful meaning being a member of society, living peacefully with others, that we need to have this energy to do something, this willingness, this motivation, this encouragement to actually do things in the world and benefit others in some cases, that we need to find ways to help others and help ourselves and help our families, that we can't just sit around and play all day like we did when we were children. Well, let's go back to Nick. Thank you, Boston. Uh, Yes, teacher David. Michael has a question on Facebook. He writes, can you give examples on how to use energy as an enlightenment factor? Yeah, so energy is having that motivation, that encouragement, that enthusiasm to do something. And this really comes down to pulling up your boots and putting on your pants and making it happen. Oftentimes people ask me, you know, Teacher, I feel so complacent. How do I get out of this? Well, you need to investigate the teachings, but you also need to spring up that energy where you just got to pull up your boots and you just got to do it. The mind wants to stay in the darkness. The mind wants to hold on to this complacency. It wants to just sit around and do nothing. But you've got to move the mind in the other direction. It's a struggle sometimes. It can be really challenging. Sometimes you have to bite off little tiny things. At one point in my life, I had to leave college for a while. I was on all kinds of psychotropic medications and all these kind of things. And I was very deep in depression for many years. And 
I was staying at this farmhouse where I was at all day long, all by myself. And I couldn't even get off the sofa. I couldn't even get out of bed. I was so depressed. There were some days where I was sleeping like literally 23 hours a day. And I had to do that little by little. You know, I would go out for a five minute walk in the sun and then I I would be depressed and I would just go back in. And then the next day I would go out for six minutes or seven minutes and then come back in. And, you know, I just gradually got back out into society. And sometimes you have to do these little steps, little by little by little. And that's what it's going to take is you've got to just pull up your boots. You got to put on your pants. You got to Go out there little by little by little and find these little successes along the way. And this is how you spring up energy in the mind. There's no special meditation. There's nothing I can say to you. There's no special button on your body that you can push and the energy is going to spring up. You've got to bring that into the mind through your own willingness, your own determination to get out there into the world and do things. Chris has his hand raised. Let's go to him. Hi, Teacher David. Hi, everyone. Teacher David, I have been reflecting on all these things that you're saying and thinking about, you just mentioned helping others, and I'm fascinated from a disability perspective, but also from a worldly perspective on a lot of this. Um, When it comes to helping others, would you say that the best way to do that is to keep practicing and growing and helping these teachings take root personally and then sharing just as you can, but primarily being uh, kind of a living example, if you will, of the teachings? Or or is there some way to, to share in a way while you're learning to you know, help kind of change what's going on in the minds of other people, I guess. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for the question, Chris. It's important to always remember and always understand that your journey on this path to enlightenment is your journey. It's an independent journey. There's never a time where, you know, we should be on a street corner beating a drum and trying to convince other people to walk on this path or pushing or forcing other people to learn about these teachings. So in terms of helping others, yes, one way that we can help others is to invite people in to learn and practice with us, but without craving desire attachment for that to occur. But there's lots of ways to help other people. You can just be walking down the street and smile at somebody. That's a a little thing that you can do to help somebody. Today we were out with some friends and there's this little five-year-old boy that was sitting next to me at this table that was this girl's birthday. And I uh, just said to him, I said, I really like your haircut. You have such a nice haircut. He has a he has a buzz cut, the same as what I've got. And I was just like, oh, I really like your haircut, right? These little things like this, it's just being positive and motivating and encouraging. Sometimes when we think about helping people, we think about changing the world. We're, we're not interested in changing the world. In order to progress to enlightenment, you have to be interested in changing your own mind. What a Buddhist practitioner is doing is looking to understand the mind, understand the world. And by understanding how the world functions through these natural laws of existence, then your mind can move into this peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If we had a craving to change the world, we wouldn't be able to actually 
help and improve things in the world. So the Buddha helped the world tremendously by sharing his teachings, but he did it without craving desire attachment. That's why it was so successful and it continues to this day and it will continue long after all of us are are gone. So always be sure to focus on your own practice. That's number one. And then as you see someone in your life that might be interested in the teachings, then yeah, you can suggest something. You might be able to mention something, but some people are just not interested. I think one of the best ways is to give people a gift. This book that I share, I think that, you know, wrapping it up for a birthday gift or a holiday gift or just any kind of gift for any reason whatsoever, just practicing generosity by practicing generosity of helping the community to share invitations for people to come join the group learning program and you know know that we're having a retreat in America and things like this and it's not that you go out in the street and you push people and you force people and you tell people but you just put it out there through Facebook, through an email, through different things that you might share and then let people step forward. Oftentimes If you've been brought up in a certain tradition, you might have been brought up to think that we have to go out and push these teachings into the world. But actually, that's not the way it works. Instead, we bring the teachings into our own life. We pull them into our own life. And then in doing so, people will observe like, wow, Chris, you've been studying that Buddhism now for however many months or years. Like you seem to be getting so much more peaceful. What is it? You know, they're going to start being inquisitive. And that's where the doors open that you can share something with somebody. But then you do that without craving desire attachment. There's many ways to help people in the world, but the help that we provide should be something that's welcomed from another person. Oftentimes when we think about helping people, In the unenlightened mind, we think that we know what's best. I know what's best for this person. Let me force my opinions, my views, my perceptions onto this person and get them to do what I do. This isn't helping somebody. This is actually harming yourself and harming them. Instead, what helping someone is, is allowing them to make their own choices. And when we put out things that are available in terms of sharing opportunities for people to come learn when they step forward because they're going to have to make a million and one decisions to get to enlightenment. When they step forward, that's when they're pulling the teachings into their life. And that's what's going to actually work in terms of the teachings. But there's many different ways to help people in the world. Thank you. Again. You're welcome. Let's go to back, uh, back to Neke. This teacher. There's another question from Michael on Facebook. Uh, about the seven factors of enlightenment. He writes, for the factor of joy, would you consider that as a pleasant feeling that you eventually have to cut off with right effort, trying to understand how to use joy? Yeah, so joy is very different than a pleasant feeling. A pleasant feeling is going to be based on some condition, an impermanent condition, that you got a new pair of shoes, a new job, and when this thing happens then the mind arises these pleasant feelings. But when there's joy in the mind, the joy is just going to be there and persist for no reason. There's no reason. There's no condition that's created the joy. The mind is just joyful just because it's joyful. Well, no more questions, teacher. All right. So let's talk about number four and five in terms of the five hindrances. Number four is restlessness and worry. 
In the 10 fetters, you will see a fetter called restlessness. This is where the mind is overactive. And you'll see this in your body. When you start tapping your finger, or you're bobbing your knee, you'll see that is evidence that the mind is overactive, that the body is also overactive because the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. So if you're observing that your body is tapping the finger, bobbing the knee, doing all these other things, then you can look at the mind with mindfulness and you'll know that the mind is overactive. And the mind can also be worried, you know, worried about the future, worried about all these different things. So when the mind is having restlessness and when the mind is worried, there's this confusion, there's this distraction, there's this restless state of mind where the mind can also be worried about your own unskillful conduct. Whereas if you do something that is unwholesome, you can be really worried about it. Oh my God, what's going to happen to me? Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, uh, what's going to happen? I'm going to have unwholesome gamma. This is the restlessness and worry. You have to understand that you are going to make mistakes. As you're learning this path, you can't snap your fingers and be perfect. Just because you heard me teach the Eightfold Path, you're not going to be able to implement it the next day and be perfect. So where you have missteps, you need to just realize that that's part of the process. And those missteps are where you're gaining your wisdom. So rather than worry about your own unskillful conduct and have this restless state of mind, this anxiety because of what's going on in this overactive mind. Instead, practice these enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. That's what's going to bring in the calmness into the mind and calm the mind down, quiet it, and still it. And that'll get easier as you progress practicing the full path. Because if you remember the Buddha's words from that one short excerpt that I shared, is he says it's the full path that's going to lead to eliminating all these five hindrances. And then I'm sharing with you some of his other teachings that are going to help you eliminate them as well. So practicing tranquility, concentration, equanimity from the seven factors of enlightenment, yes, that's going to eliminate restlessness and worry. But those by themselves wouldn't eliminate restlessness and worry. You also need the Eightfold Path in order to practice all of those teachings to eliminate restlessness and worry as well. But where you see restlessness and worry coming into the mind, then you know to practice tranquility, concentration, equanimity, and let go of this craving, desire, attachment to be perfect all the time. But also, don't be complacent and just be like, yeah, 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 you know, I did this thing unwholesome, so what? Who cares? So you're not interested in being complacent, but you're also not interested in craving to be perfect all the time. You got to find that middle where you're diligently working towards improvements, where you observe, yeah, I was unskillful here. I was wrong. Let me apologize. I'm sorry and apologize and then work to improve, gain more wisdom, make it better. Number five is doubt. This is also one of the 10 fetters. Doubt is having doubt in the Buddha, having doubt about his teachings having doubt about the community, having doubt about your teacher, and having doubt about your own ability to attain enlightenment. So if you have doubt about the teachings and the ability of them to lead you and guide you to enlightenment, initially this can actually be really healthy. I call this healthy doubt because if you have this doubt that you're not quite sure whether these teachings are going to lead to enlightenment or not, that can actually spring up the interest to have 
the enlightenment factor of investigation. And if you have this healthy doubt where it springs up this intrigue and this inquisitive mind where you're interested in investigating the teachings, now when you investigate the teachings and you're learning, reflecting, and practicing, the more you observe the condition of the mind improving, you will eventually eliminate the doubt. That's how doubt ultimately gets eliminated, is through the enlightenment factor of investigation. The more you investigate the teachings and you learn, reflect, and practice, and you see the discontentedness diminish, that's where doubt gets eliminated. Doubt doesn't get eliminated through belief, because as you've heard me share multiple times, is you shouldn't believe anything whatsoever. So it's not belief that's going to lead to the elimination of doubt. It's through investigation and then applying the teachings in your daily life. And that's where you'll actually see this wisdom come onto the mind. And now you'll build your confidence that, wow, that used to make me extremely angry. Now I'm just kind of annoyed by that. Oh, now it happened again. And I feel completely peaceful. Wow, this Buddha was surely enlightened. His teachings are surely leading the mind to a improved condition. My life, my relationships are improving. Wow, this community of practitioners that I'm part of is really being supportive. My teacher is really helping me. They're interested. They're dedicated. They're willing to share these teachings with me without reservations. And wow, look at what I've done. I went from anger to being completely peaceful in this situation. I have the ability to do this. I just need to keep doing it on a consistent long-term basis. And that's what's ultimately going to eradicate doubt 100%. There's other hindrances as well besides the ones that we've been talking about here. These are the five hindrances, and this is a certain level of detail, but they are also hindrances that go deeper than this. And there's also one hindrance above all of this. The hindrance of all hindrances is the ignorance or unknowing of true reality. That's the high level challenge that everybody's facing that is in the unenlightened mental state. If your mind is unenlightened, you have this major hindrance of ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And the way to fix that is through investigation of the teachings, what you're doing through learning like this. So while these are a certain level of detail, these five, there's some that are deeper than that, but always keep in mind that the hindrance of all hindrances is ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, and the antidote to that is wisdom. And the way that you get to wisdom is you learn the teachings, you independently verify them to see the truth. You seek guidance where you need guidance. And when you independently see the truth, that's where you gain wisdom. And this wisdom is what will antidote and remedy the ignorance and all of these things will then move further and further away where you can obliterate all of this stuff and you can eliminate all the pollution, purify the mind, and get to this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Any questions on these? Not seeing any questions for now, Kishore. All right. Let's go to the next thing that I was interested to share with you guys. This is the last thing for today's class is... Let's talk about mindfulness because as you heard me share, mindfulness is so important in understanding how to eliminate the 
five hindrances. Because if you weren't practicing mindfulness, you wouldn't even know that any of these hindrances exist in the mind. If you weren't practicing mindfulness, you wouldn't be practicing right mindfulness as part of the Eightfold Path. If you weren't practicing mindfulness, you wouldn't be able to purify the mind because you don't even understand what's wholesome and what's unwholesome that's currently in the mind. So having this understanding that mindfulness is observing the mind and having this awareness of mind, now taking that deeper is to understand the four foundations of mindfulness. These are the four areas of the mind that you need to understand of how discontentedness affects the mind. And by understanding the awareness of the mind and cultivating the four foundations of mindfulness, you're going to be able to completely eliminate discontentedness. You're going to need to move beyond and deeper beyond this definition of just awareness of mind. You're going to need to understand these four foundations of mindfulness. There's what the Buddha calls the bodily sensations or the body as body. This is having awareness or observing the bodily sensations. Before your mind gets angry or the feeling of anger comes into the mind, prior to that, there's some bodily sensation. There's maybe heat or there's like pins and needles that you feel perhaps. Before the mind becomes shy, you're going to feel butterflies in the stomach. Before the mind experiences pleasurable feelings, there's going to be some bodily sensation associated with this. So before the mind actually experiences any discontent feelings, there's bodily sensations that are occurring before that, that you may or may not be aware of right now. If you're not aware of them right now, that's okay. That's just where you're at. But what you would like to develop is this ability to observe these bodily sensations prior to any feelings coming in the mind. Because if you can be aware of these bodily sensations before the feelings come into the mind, then you can cut it off and let it go as a bodily sensation. And if you can gain the control and the ability of the mind to be aware of these bodily sensations and cut them off and let them go there as a bodily sensation, then you're going to save yourself a whole mountain of trouble and challenges. So by being aware of these bodily sensations, oh, I feel the mind about to get angry, cut that off and let it go as a bodily sensation, highly beneficial because the mind never got that feeling of anger. Or you feel this excitement starting to come into the mind because your mom's coming to visit you at your house, or you're getting ready to go on a trip overseas, or you're about to buy this new pair of shoes or this new car, and you feel this pleasant feeling starting to arise, but it's just a bodily sensation right now. If you can cut it off right there and let it go, you've just saved yourself a whole lot of heartache. But if you miss it as a bodily sensation, you're just not aware of the bodily sensations now, you can start becoming aware of the bodily sensations and cut it off and let it go there. And it'll be easier to cut it off and let it go the more you're practicing breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity. But if you miss it as a bodily sensation, it becomes a feeling in the mind. This is those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. You can cut it off and let it go there as well. So that would be the next best thing. The best thing would be to observe it as a bodily sensation that this discontentedness is coming. Let me cut it off and let it go there. But if you miss it, now it becomes feelings. Let me cut it off and let it go there. But if you can't do that, then it's going to affect the mind in the condition of the mind 
for a few hours, a few days, or maybe a week or two. So that's why it would be much better to cut it off as a bodily sensation so you never get to that point where the anger is setting in the mind for a few hours, a few days, or a few weeks. So if you can cut it off as a bodily sensation, you've saved yourself a whole lot of heartache. But if it becomes a feeling in the mind, you can cut it off there too. And then even if it's affecting the condition of the mind and you're observing for a few hours or a few days, the mind is angered or frustrated or having these conditioned pleasant feelings or these neither painful nor pleasant feelings. If you're noticing any of that discontentedness coming into the mind and it's affecting the condition of the mind for hours, days or a couple of weeks, you can cut it off there as well and let it go. But it's a lot harder when you've allowed it to reside in the mind for that longer period of time. That's why having mindfulness and awareness of these bodily sensations is so important because you can cut it off, let it go there and save yourself a whole lot of trouble. And if you don't let it go as the condition of the mind is being affected more for hours, days or weeks, then what happens is it forms mental objects. This is how ill will, something like ill will gets formed in the mind, is that we experience these bodily sensations, we experience these feelings, we experience this condition of the mind. We did this multiple times without having the wisdom that this was occurring. And then this mental object of ill will got formed at some point in our life where we have this hatred, this anger, towards certain people, towards certain groups of people, different types of people, certain situations. There's this ill will, this mental object that is deeply rooted in the mind. And it's much harder to uproot that mental object because now it's so deeply rooted in the mind. And because we lack the wisdom all these years and we just kept experiencing bodily sensations, feelings, condition of the mind, let's load something up into a mental object bodily sensations, feelings, condition of the mind, let's put some more fuel in that mental object. Bodily sensation, feelings, condition of the mind, more fuel. All these experiences over a long-term period of time conditioned our minds with these various mental objects, like central desire, like ill will, like complacency, like restlessness and worry, and like doubt. These all got formed over multiple years. And now, once these mental objects are formed, we need to work at them. We need to be aware of them and uproot them out of the mind. And that's how you can purify the mind. So while you're working on uprooting these mental objects, you should also be working to be aware of these bodily sensations so you're no longer feeding these mental objects and giving them more fuel. So if you can cut off these discontent feelings as a bodily sensation, then you're not feeding these mental objects and making them any stronger. If they come into feelings in the mind, you can still cut them off there and not feed this mental object. And the same thing is the condition of the mind. So while you're working on uprooting these mental objects through all the aspects of the Eightfold Path and everything else that the Buddha teaches, part of that Eightfold Path is to be aware of these bodily sensations so that you can stop feeding these mental objects and there you can chip away at them, like with a jackhammer. And you're gradually chipping away at this mental object and you're diminishing it smaller and smaller and smaller. So now it's less impactful and it doesn't affect the mind as much 
when these mental objects get worn away and ultimately uprooted and eliminated from the mind. So you can read more about these four foundations of mindfulness in volume one, chapter five. When you go through the book, you'll see in chapter five under right mindfulness, I explain it more in there. This was just an introduction to you to help you start to understand right mindfulness in more detail and start to understand the four foundations of mindfulness so that you understand that mindfulness is above and beyond just awareness of mind, that there's a much deeper aspect of mindfulness that you need to practice to ultimately get to enlightenment. Because it, once you develop the ability to be aware of the bodily sensations and cut off and let go of the discontentedness that's arising there, the Buddha says this person is very close to enlightenment. Enlightenment is very close because you've developed the ability to be aware of the bodily sensations so well, you would have had to practice these teachings really deeply to get to that point and to be able to cut it off and let it go as a bodily sensation, you would have had to develop the mind really well to be able to get to that point. So enlightenment is very close for someone who has that ability to observe the bodily sensations and cut it off and let it go there. If you keep allowing the feelings to come into the mind, then the mind is still experiencing discontentedness. You've got to get ahead of that and cut it off as a bodily sensation and let it go there. And this person is very close to enlightenment. So let me see what questions you guys have as we end out our class today. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. Well, on Zoom, Mana has a question. She writes, when experiencing what you described as joy, the mind tries to investigate a few things to see whether it too may be impermanent or conditioned. There doesn't seem to be anything attached to this joy as observed, but one of the things which, which comes up is boredom. How would one differentiate between experiencing peace or joy for some period without, without running into the mind, still grasping that there may be a boredom? Yeah, so boredom is still discontentedness. And what you'll typically experience as you're moving the mind and transforming it to enlightenment is that for the vast majority of our life, all that we've ever known is craving, desire, attachment. That that's how we avoid these painful feelings. That when we experience things like anger or sadness or boredom or loneliness or any of these other discontent feelings, we grasp for something. We chase after the pleasant feelings. We buy a new pair of shoes or we have sex or we gamble or we go shopping. This is what brings the mind out of those painful feelings into the pleasant feelings. But yet that's part of the problem too. But we don't understand that in the unenlightened mind. So as the mind is so used to having craving, desire, attachment, and it doesn't know any other way, as you start diminishing craving, desire, attachment, and the mind is no longer chasing after the objects of its affection, it's very common for boredom to come into the mind because the mind still has this grasping. There's this residual grasping that's in the mind and there's this boredom that comes into the mind. So it's only through continuing to practice, being diligent in your practice. There's no special remedy for boredom because boredom is a discontent feeling. What causes discontentedness? Craving, desire, attachment. 
Well, how do we eliminate discontentedness? We need to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Well, how do we eliminate craving, desire, attachment? Practicing breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and generosity. And then being aware of these bodily sensations that when boredom arises, there's going to be bodily sensations that happen before that. Cut that off and let it go, applying right effort. So you're going to observe the shifts and changes in the mind where in certain situations where you were bored in the past, you would just grasp for something. You would long for something. You would maybe go out shopping or do something like that. And that's what would get you out of the boredom. But now you kind of have to experience that boredom, cut that off and let it go as best you can and do that enough times that the mind moves beyond this boredom where it no longer experiences it anymore. So just remaining dedicated and diligent to the entire path and just keep working the path that's leading to the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, that's how you eliminate the boredom, just continuing to do more of the same. Let's go to Jean. Thank you, Bassam. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, I'm reflecting that my family um, cultivated ill will, and so I lived around this strong ill will for 40, 50 years of my life. And I'm aware that it's very much a mental object. I guess very deep seated. My reaction, initial reaction to a lot of things, is to. Um, be critical, to think about what somebody did wrong. So um, I'm working on this and it's going to take a while, I understand. Mm -hmm. But I find that sometimes it makes me feel like I shouldn't go out in public, <laughs> but I should not be around other people because I'm, it's so difficult for me to keep my temper, you know, and, and not experience these flares. I've gotten better at being quiet and not saying things to people, you know, to practice right speech. But I, um, I wonder if you have any thoughts or guidance about this, you know, feeling that I shouldn't even go out in public so that I don't experience this or direct it to other people. This, in my Thank opinion, you. yeah, you're welcome. This, in my opinion, is very wise. If you're observing with mindfulness that the mind is struggling and it's not able to practice loving kindness, then it's very wise to stay secluded and stay by yourself. Because if your mind is having ill will arising and you go out and interact with other people and now you start practicing unskillful intention, speech, and actions, you're causing harm and that harm is going to come back to you. So this is a very wise decision that where you observe that your mind is not prepared to do certain things, there's no harm in being secluded and by yourself. And likewise, if you're in your own household and say you and your partner or you and your children or uh, whoever, you're involved in any situation anywhere, whether it's at work or at home or whatever, and you're observing that ill will or anger is arising in the mind and you're having contact with somebody, sometimes the best thing to do is break contact, go somewhere, be secluded for an hour, two hours, three hours, let the mind calm down maybe even for a few days or a few weeks before you then come back together and finish out that conversation or continue forward with whatever it is that you're doing. This is very wise. Someone who understands the danger and the slightest faults or the slightest missteps will make these kind of decisions that where you see bodily sensations starting to arise and you're trying to cut them off and you're not able to do that and you start feeling the feelings in the mind of anger and hostility 
It's like, okay, well, I'm sitting here having this conversation with my partner or my children or my boss. Let me politely, kindly, friendly, respectfully find a way to remove myself from the conversation so that I don't say something or do something that I'm going to regret later. This is very, very wise. And when you're able to do this, this is that transitionary period. I call it like being quietly frustrated, where in the past we might have been angered and frustrated and we kind of lash out at people through our speech and our actions. And then it just comes back to us where now when you're starting to transform the mind internally, you know, like, oh, my goodness, there's that anger. Oh, the speech. Oh, I really want to say something strong here, but I know that would be unwise. You're like sitting there struggling in the mind. It's like the mind's at war with itself. There's all this thinking and pondering, but yet you didn't say anything, yet you didn't do anything. This is where the mind is quietly frustrated. It's better to be quietly frustrated than overtly angry. When you're overtly angry and you're having speech and actions, you're causing harm to others, so therefore it's going to come back to you. When you're quietly frustrated, you're the only one having to deal with that. And you can deal with that and you can deal with it on your own time by moving away from the conversation if you need to. But by us being overtly aggressive, that's where we're causing the most harm to others that's going to ultimately come back to us. So what you're describing sounds very wise to me and you might need that. And oftentimes when people are moving towards enlightenment, the way that I explain is I explain it like a bow tie. That when we were younger, our life was wide open, you know, doing all these kind of unwholesome things. And we start gaining some wisdom and our mind and our life kind of comes down and we kind of start not having as many friends. We don't kind of interact with people as much. There's more selective about who we interact with. Our life kind of comes down to the knot of the bow tie. And this is where we do all the work internally to work on our own mind with the Buddhist teachings. And then as we start moving towards enlightenment and we start observing that we can go out into the world, our life blossoms again, like the other side of the bow tie. And this is what we experience as part of this path to enlightenment. Our life's wide open. It kind of shrinks down to the knot of the bow tie, and then it kind of expands back out again. But when we expand back out again, then we're doing it with all this wholesomeness. So now all of our relationships are much more wholesome. We're having more healthy interactions in the world. Our mind has been kind of rewired to do things differently than what we were doing in the past. And this is where our life can completely blossom for us through having this wisdom that you cultivate in the mind and practice these teachings. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, so now learning with you from the very beginning until today, uh, what would be the next uh, step to get closer to enlightenment? For anybody who has done this group learning program once or they started kind of midway through, I would suggest that you do this group learning program again because you really should uh, go through this program at least twice and read this book, you know, the first volume, you know, two, three, four, five times. There's some students that have even read it eight, 10, 12 times, because each time it's like a movie. Each time you watch the movie, you learn a little bit more, you observe a little bit more, you see more details. I say things slightly different. People ask questions differently. Your pollution of mind is diminishing more and more. So you're gonna retain things differently. You're gonna hear things differently. There's research that shows that any learning opportunity you go through, 
the first time you gain about 10% of what's really being offered in that learning opportunity. And then the second time is kind of like 40%. And then the third time is like 80%, right? So I would suggest people to take this program at least twice. And at some point, you might decide to also add in the Polycanon and English Study Group, which meets on Saturdays. Some people can do both of these at the same time. Depends on how much space you have in your life, how much space you're able to make in your life. But both of these programs together, if you went through the group learning program once, that's seven months, the Polycanon and English program is about a year and a half. So that's two years worth of study right there. It took the Buddha six years to get enlightened. So remember that, that it's going to take you a little while. It's not a quick thing. There's not a quick fix here. It's going to take you a little while. So if you did the group learning program more than once and you did the Polycanon and English study group more than once, you're talking many years of time, effort, energy, and resources to learn and practice and all the decisions that you're making in terms of your meditation and practicing generosity and going to retreats and different events and things like this, it becomes your lifestyle that you're not just doing this because it's a fad of learning the Buddhist teachings. You're not just meditating because it's a fad. You're doing it with real intention and real dedication to improve the condition of the mind. And you realize that it's a lifelong journey. And for many of us, it's a multiple life journey. You might have been studying these teachings in previous lives. Right. So it's a multiple life journey. It's a multiple year journey. So anybody who thinks that, you know, they can study the Buddhist teachings in one year, two years and get to enlightenment, then this is probably the ego speaking. Right. The ego wants you to believe that that's what you can do. So just dedicate yourself to know that it's going to be a long term growth, long term progression and that learning multiple times in a program like this, you can just soak into the teachings deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, so that's what I would suggest is that anybody who would like to really sincerely and in a serious way move towards enlightenment is to continue to learn. And we're going to restart this program on the 6th of April, which is only about a week and a half away from now. We're going to start from the very beginning and go all the way back through again. This will be the fifth time that I've taught this program. Many thanks, teacher. That's all for today. All right. Well, I'll just share with you guys what we're going to be covering in our future classes. Next Sunday is the 3rd of April, and we're going to be doing a special class, which is titled Getting to Know the Teacher. We did this about two years ago, where basically I just started class and opened up to any and all questions that you guys had, where you can get to know me. You can ask me any and all questions. I'll answer any question that you ask. I would suggest that you perhaps think about some questions that you would maybe like to know about me or more specifically, the reason why we're doing this is that any of the struggles and difficulties that I've had in my life that I've overcome, this is an opportunity for you to benefit and gain understanding because you might be experiencing some of those same challenges and difficulties. So any and all questions related to this path or related to the practice that I have of this path, my understanding of these teachings, anything and anything that you would like to know. If you're interested in knowing what my childhood was like, what my early adulthood, what my adult life was like, what I'm looking to do in the future going forward, any and all questions that you would like to ask, that's going to be next Sunday. This Wednesday 
is our last meditation class for this iteration of the group learning program. We're going to be doing loving kindness meditation as a group. So you're welcome to join for that. That'll be our last time to come together for this particular iteration of the group learning program. But then we're going to restart on the 6th of April, which is the next Wednesday after that. That particular class, I'm going to be basically providing you a framework of understanding of what this program is all about and my suggestions for you of how to progress in this program. What's kind of the best ways to learn and progress and kind of setting up the whole class. If you ever took a college class or any kind of class in high school or whatever, there's always kind of like that first day of class where the professor is kind of helping the students understand a framework of the program or the class and kind of the ways to be most successful in that program or that class going forward. So I'm going to do that on the 6th of April, which is a Wednesday. So if you don't typically attend the Wednesday classes, remember that's going to be recorded. So you can watch that on Facebook, YouTube, or listen to it on the podcast. And then two Sundays from now will be where I'll start a three-part series of the Eightfold Path. We're going to break down the Eightfold Path, which is the path to enlightenment, in three individual classes so we can talk about it in detail in each individual class. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. Pleased that you guys have all decided to learn and practice these teachings. Really pleased to see that you guys are continuing to learn and ask questions and you're very interested in bringing these teachings into your life because as you do, you're going to see that your life's going to improve. The people around you, they're going to notice these benefits that you're experiencing because your mind's going to be more and more peaceful. And then by us doing this individually, it's actually helping all of humanity. So your life, those close to you, and all of humanity are just going to improve more and more through your decision to focus on your life practice. That's what this path is all about, is your life practice. So thank you all. We'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very lovely rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.